Hi everyone, this is Andy and this is podcast number four. Uh, today we have a special guest, his name is Daniel Webin. Uh, he's wrapping up his PhD in... Music composition. Music composition at the University of uh, Washington. Uh, but he's also on the side a healthcare expert. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm kidding. Limelighting uh, is a healthcare expert. Yeah. So uh, I thought it would be a good opportunity this week since there's a lot of conversation about the Senate healthcare bill to talk about um, healthcare, um, initially talking about the healthcare bill, what's good, what's bad. Um, he might have the opinion of nothing good about it. Um, but then uh, moving from there onto a broader conversation about healthcare ideologically. Um, and I think a lot of it will go into economics. Uh, so we'll, we'll see where it leads. Um, but I've got a few questions I'm going to ask Daniel. But uh, yeah, um, one thing to know about Daniel is that um, he's relatively leftist, liberal. Yeah, Le- relati- left. relatively leftist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More leftist by the day. Right. So he advocates a single payer system. Yes, for sure. That's accurate. And of course, if you've heard my first two podcasts, I don't. <laughs> of course, I haven't talked about healthcare, but I think you could deduce that I don't necessarily uh, care too much for government run much of anything. So, um, but yeah, let's get started. Um, so, Daniel, what do you think about the current healthcare bill that's before the Senate, the AHCA? Um, well, I can only frame it in what I know about it in, um, like, frame it in the negative, I suppose, and, <laughs> and what it will roll back. And so I've seen all the numbers of the, uh, the CBO reports of how many people won't be insured. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I could say that doesn't appeal to me at all. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, I'm a little foggy right now because there have been so many recent versions tossed back and forth. Right. And I think the... The mandate is back in now. Is mm-hmm. that right? That was out and now it's back yeah. in. So, yeah, it, it, I mean, so the House bill definitely didn't have it. I'm pretty sure the Senate is keeping out the mandate, but it's also keeping um, or it's extending the preservation of the Medicaid uh, subsidies. Okay. So, um, but I'm not, yeah, it's unclear whether or not the mandate's in and it's backdoor conversations about it. So it's Right, not, yeah. So probably my biggest problem, honestly, is that it seems like impossibly, uh, you know, opaque (laughs) and and um i just think that's generally not a good thing um it seems to me to do to only keep the things about obamacare that i didn't particularly like and get rid of the things that i did like sure um so what were those things that you liked and didn't like so the things that i that i did like about obamacare was you know pre-existing conditions i thought Mm -hmm. was good the things that i um that I did like about Obamacare were things like um, I think there were there were, uh, caps on maximum amount that you could charge right. at, like for age differences it was three times not five times yeah and I don't know if that was Obamacare thing that was just pre Obamacare that might have actually been before Obamacare I'm not actually sure on the, the three and Obamacare definitely extended um, the uh, or lessened the yeah whatever it's called yeah, yeah. The, the caps um, so things like that uh, that it got rid of I think are bad things that it has kept. Um, that I also think are bad <laughs> is um, like I think the marketplaces um, the exchanges yeah. the exchanges were kind of a bad do, idea not necessarily a bad idea they were they they basically didn't work really anywhere they actually worked okay here in Washington State I thought yeah. but they were set up in a way that if the states didn't want them to work they they weren't going to work right. it was set up in a way that it could be easily crippled yeah and um, so a lot of the basically the things like letting the states pick and choose. If they want to accept, uh, you know, Medicare funding, and if they actually want to make mm-hmm. uh, exchanges that, that actually work, 
um, that stuff is still around it, 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 kind of in spirit. And, of course, that was a compromise, right? That, right. In that order was to com- get it passed in the Senate. Yeah, exactly. That was a compromise to begin with. Yeah. And I, you know, I didn't like that. Now, I, th- I think right. I should say that a lot of people on my side on the left don't like Obamacare to begin with. Right. Because... I see it. It's, and like it's a half measure. It's a, it was a half measure, and it was like essentially kind of dreamed up as a Republican. Like it was what the Republicans would have passed had they had the chance. Mm-hmm. And now the Republicans have like nothing to roll back to. But you think the Republicans would have passed Obamacare? They would have passed maybe a slightly more conservative version of it. But I mean, that it was Romney care, right? That's what they had. Yeah. that's what it was modeled yeah. after. I mean, it, it was, was that's a state base, not. Yeah, no, that's based. fair. Yeah. But I, but I I think in a broad sense, it was a fairly conservative. Uh, you know, overhaul, it still was very like market driven right. uh, of healthcare. And so it's like, what do you do? Like, you need the political win of mm-hmm. rolling this thing back, but you don't really have a lot of room to, to back up right. from. Like, you, you know, you, you've nothing to back into. And so it, to me, it seems like kind of an intractable problem. And I'm not at all surprised that they can't seem to get it together. Right. So it was a half measure that was compromised into more of a half measure that just didn't end up working. Right. And so, yeah. And it wasn't, in, maybe it wasn't intended to work. I mean, and that's, that's maybe the argument that, oh, like it was this like 12 dimensional chess and, you know, like down the, <laughs> down the road it would, it would fall apart. Um, we'd be forced to go into a single payer system. Yeah. I'm, I'm not nearly so generous that Obama was playing 12 dimensional chess with mm-hmm. um, his, his healthcare thing. Um, and I, you know, I, the argument obviously from the, the conservatives is well, like why don't we just let all these exchanges fail, and why don't we just let the healthcare system collapse, and then we will pick up the pieces. And I think just today they were saying, why don't we just repeal now and replace later? That was, uh, I think that came across Trump's test. I don't know if you read that. Um, yeah, I think I did. Someone, um, yeah, someone talked about that today. Oh, who was it? Anyway, I, I, I didn't recognize the name. So yeah, it's it's so it's so fluid. It's, it's a Republican senator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's a Republican thing, and um, it is interesting seeing some Republicans come out come come against it. Uh, a woman, I think, it was a woman from Alaska that received Susan a lot, Collins. Yeah, maybe she's a lot of a lot of Medicare funding for her state, and she was yeah. like, "Yeah, no, like that, I can't like roll back Medicare. I funding. can't roll back this, you know, for my constituents, for yeah. my people in my state." So it is interesting that it's kind of pushing people to their breaking point as far as like yeah. their ideological concerns the but on both sides on right? both sides because you've got moderate conservatives and you've got hardcore conservatives who are like this isn't conservative enough I know I know yeah it's, yeah. Very, it's very interesting like it's kind of forcing people to show their colors so I, you know like kind of part of me likes it for that reason but that's kind of evil. <laughs> it's kind of evil what reason to like something but yeah. like I don't know like at least like at least we can see where the chips fall and on, on the on the Dems too on you know left of center um you know, like, yeah. you can kind of see where people really stand on these issues. Yeah. Well, and we've talked about before, you've got leftists, you've got liberals, then you've got moderate conservatives, and you've got ideological conservatives. Yeah. And um, all of them don't like it. Yeah, no one likes it. <laughs> so um, uh, I can only ask, um, you You already explained from a leftist perspective, why, why do you think the, the neoliberals, I guess, don't like it? The Hillarys and the, um, I guess, whoever else is neoliberal. I Honestly, it would seem to me like if anyone would like it, it would be them. Uh, but I think they they don't like it because of, I would say, for more political reasons Principle. and less for ideological reasons. Yeah. Like it's Obamacare, we're going to keep Obamacare. Yeah, yeah, because, because you know they, they see Obama, Obama's legacy as this thing that like ought to be preserved, yeah. and I don't really... And she campaigned on Obama. Exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and then I also think that, I mean, I know we're going to get into this a little bit later, but I think that they... They want to do like whatever they can to like keep single payer at bay and like anything. Any so why would a liberal, uh, not liberal, 
Lib Dem, that's Britain. Um, why would a neoliberal want to keep single parrot there? I mean, it's what um, was it Pelosi that said this? Probably. Uh, yeah, that, that, that someone asked her. <laughs> someone asked her, uh, like, do you support capitalism? She said, yes, we are capitalists. Like. I guess they have to, yeah. Yeah, and like a like a full throated defense of it. And I don't think that anyone necessarily expect, expected her to have like a full throated like defense of socialism, but at least to have like a somewhat like reserved like defense of capitalism. Yeah. So I mean, I, I think it's, it's that obliviousness to what's going on in the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's you know it's it's kind of been a saying on the left for a while that if given the choice between like socialism and fascism, a neoliberal yeah. pick fascism any day of the week. Um, mm. and, and, or Interesting. And, meaning that like if, and they say fascism, but yeah. I think what they really mean is um, like cat, like conservative things, mm -hmm. but that are capitalist, sure. that the neoliberal pick that over right. anything that smacks of socialism. So that's a good point. So I'm just curious, this is a side question, not having to do with healthcare. What percentage, and I know this is arbitrary admittedly, but what percentage of the um, Democratic Party or at least the left, the, the ideological left, is actually so socialist purist. I couldn't cannot answer that for you. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a pure socialist. I'm I'm a you know co-ops and welfare state socialist. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say most people. I would say you probably have to break it down demographically. I would say right. we're talking under thirty fives. Uh, people like me, co-ops and welfare state socialists. Yeah, half. Uh, pure socialist, and again, you can slice as thin as you want. Are you a Trotskyist? Or, I mean, there are people that are third world Maoists. You know, they think that that we should go back to an agrarian society. Um, so hashtag communist. Yeah, yeah. So um, those people, pretty small. I would say, like, like the Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA has tripled mm -hmm. in size since Trump took office. That a what record. Is, what is the DSA? Democratic Socialist of America. But what is it? It's not a political party. It's an organization. Right. Okay. It's a grassroots organization. And they do um, a lot of union organi organization, mm -hmm. a lot of activism. They support a lot of um, so there's like the B and H uh, photo strike in New York, and DSA in New York is, yeah. is uh, supporting that. And so they're sort of the like activist uh, organization that I would say most strongly en encapsulates. If you had to average out like the progressive left side, it would be mm -hmm. the DSA. Okay. And um, I don't have the numbers in front of me. If you look that up, that'll probably give you like a baseline. Right. But it's more of a, a socialist populist sort of thing. It's yeah. not going to be this identity politics sort of. No. Yeah. Socialist. Po po yeah. Populist socialism. Corbynism. I mean, yeah. Corbynism. Like, like, you know, the DSA wasn't. Side note, Jeremy Corbyn, UK. Our boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Melanchon. My boy. Is Melanchon a... Melanchon. Uh, you know, I honestly like I am, am a latecomer to the whole like kind of socialist game. So I knew about Corbin, and the Melchon thing happened so fast. Yeah, that I didn't have a lot of time to like get my head around it. Yeah, people were supporting of him, but uh, I, I think if you had to pick like a model, an American model for like what American socialists would like or American democratic socialists, which is what Bernie calls himself, mm -hmm. uh, would like, it would be you know read the Labor Manifesto. Like that's that's right. That's so what's it. the difference between Jeremy Corbyn, who's Socialist, yeah, and um, Bernie Sanders, who's a democratic socialist, and I know we're getting way off topic it's, here, it's, but I think it's it's probably it's probably more um, foreign policy than anything else. I mean, Bernie's like way more of a hawk than wait, than really? Corbyn. Oh, Bernie's yeah. a hawk more than Corbyn, yeah. I mean, Bernie's well, yeah, like yeah. like you know, Bernie supports the NRA, the, the NRA for one, right? Yeah. Bernie supports, so Bernie has this like slight. Wait, but the NRA is a hawkish. No, 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 I know, okay. but but it. Uh, 
Bernie supports this like kind of slight libertarian view on, on certain things like like you know gun rights and um, so in a sense conservatism in a, in a way, in a like, way on, yeah, yeah. on a handful of things but not economically no not which economically is, which has come to define conservatism yeah and, and Corbyn Corbyn is like a, an avowed like non non interventionist mm-hmm. um, and Corbyn would like you know when all the um, when all of the uh, the terror attacks happened in London, I mean, Corbyn came out and said, and as far as I know, this is the first time anyone on the left has actually said what what people like me on the left think. It's like, no, this has happened because of imperialism. Like, this is our comeuppance mm. for centuries of imperialism. What do you expect? Which yeah. is exactly what people have thought, but no one in power, no one at that level of power had ever said anything like that. And I think that's, if you want to see the distinction between Bernie and Corbyn, that's, that's right there. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. But economically, not terribly different. I, you know, obviously, like, you know, Corbin loves trains. Um, there aren't that many trains in America. So, like, if you look at, you know, specific policies, you're going to say maybe they're not that similar, but that's just country differences and cultural differences. Mm-hmm. Um, I think ideological differences, uh, w- w- you would find them a lot more uh, so you, stark in... Ideologically, you Bernie's really a socialist or he's an opportunist? Mm, I don't know. That's probably hard to say. I mean, I would say I would say he's a socialist. I would say he's... A, he's I mean, he calls himself a democratic socialist, which is what... What I would probably call myself, and um, okay, yeah, I don't know. I, I you think, don't want to embrace pure Marxism. No, and I mean, you know, honestly, my Marxism and as like Marxist scholars, of whom there are many, and and you know, I got turned on to Marxism by uh, music, like a lot of yeah. a lot of uh, music theorists and and cultural critics like Adorno are are Marxist in, in the way that they see structures mm-hmm. and in the way that they view, you know, um, these sort of like world historic struggles between capital and labor. And it's not so much a system mm-hmm. as it's sort of like a, like a, a way of thinking and a thought process. Exactly. So yeah, yeah, yeah. like, am I a Marxist in that, in that regard? Yeah. Okay. Am I a Marxist in like, am I a, like a, like a Leninist? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. You're not a Bolshevik. Yeah. 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 No, a less violent form of revolution. Uh, in the Bernie Sanders yeah, and, way. And, 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 and a revolution via the electorate. Right. Right. Okay, that's, yeah, yeah. that's the thing that was so interesting about Corbyn, is that he sort of proved the concept of revolution via like via winning the electorate. Right. Which is the thing that Dems can't seem to get their heads around. Well, uh, let's, let's parse that well. He didn't win. <laughs> he didn't win. Um, quite. Although he won back a lot. Well, he, he produced a hung parliament. Which yes. is way more than anyone expected. Right, but it's not a win. Okay, well, he I mean, very it's more like a tie that's in his favor because he wasn't expected to tie. Sure, but this is Europe we're talking about. That's how soccer works, too. So I, I mean, that's, that's... <laughs> yeah, that's valid. But no one wins in that case. In the parliamentary system, yeah. That, that is true. But, I yeah. mean, it, within a year, we could see Jeremy Corbyn as prime minister. Oh, it, no, totally. It, 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 rep- it definitely represents a huge, because a massive... Yeah, we got a lot closer to the Sanders. Can't understate the that. cultural change, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it, it's pretty amazing that, that, that Corbyn got so far in that election. Yeah, yeah. We're completely off healthcare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's fine. It's we fine. can't talk about the DHS We're laying, this we're time, laying the groundwork, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so let, let's go back to healthcare, but we're really in the same vein, right? Like, why a single-payer system? Because Jeremy Corbyn's totally all about the NHS being um, bolstered yeah. um, to, to what, early to mid-70s levels. Yeah, basically, basically pre-Thatcher funding. Yeah, yeah. Um, like pre-austerity funding is, yeah. is, is, is you know, Corbyn's thing. And we mean you've talked about this, that, that you know, um, if you take a century-wide view of it, nothing he's saying is that bizarre. Nothing Bernie said is that bizarre if you take, like, you know, an averaging the whole century. I mean, Bernie was essentially an FDR Democrat. But single-payer, um, to me and to, I think, the 
the argument that you would hear the most, or I, hopefully that you should hear the most, is that um, if we're going to say that a sick person who is, you know, life flighted or ambulance to a hospital should not be denied care, if we're going to legally require that, then we should pay for it in the most efficient way and single payers the most efficient way. Okay. That to me, like, that's the most clear cut way that as long as we have the law on the books that you're in a car wreck, you're unconscious, you have no say in your medical care, but we take care of you anyways, you wake up in the hospital two days later, mm-hmm. have however many dollars built that you should still be cared for, that we shouldn't deny right. care for people, that we should, we should pay for it. And the best way to pay for it, the most efficient way to pay for it, the way that disperses cost most evenly, and that, you know, like, ultimately is the best system is, is single payer. That's my view on the matter. Okay, that makes sense. So you're taking the logic that, okay, we're going to help this person. Yeah. We're going to help this person. Yeah. Um, and so any other system doesn't work to help all of these situations. It actually costs us more money to do that. It costs it, us more money not to have it. Yeah. yeah. So a single payer system is built to handle that. Yes. Right. Yeah, as, as uh, Tim Fowles would say, because the state bears both the cost of treating and not treating the person. Right. And only the state bears both of those costs. Insurance companies only bear the first, but the state always bears the second. And since it must bear the second, it should bear them both. I think that makes perfect sense, and I think it's one of the better explanations that I've heard in a long time. Um, so the bigger question then is, um, if, we, if, if it's the most cost-effective system... Um, based on the logic of our need to help people, right. um, to treat them in dire situations when they don't have health insurance or whatever that may be, or, or social capital where they don't have uh, relationships that, of people that can help them. It's not even that. It's when they don't, they, it's, it's when they don't have agency to make that decision, right? It's, or it, that, it, yes. It's, it's this like... It's, it's the root it's, basic. It's not part. true yeah. that you're an independent actor making independent decisions and that, that you're like an autonomous agent when it comes to your health care, right? That, that's that's well, not actually true. the case. It's, it's true most of the time that you are an independent actor making decisions. Yeah, but, but there are circumstances in which it's not true. Well, there's... I would say pleasure. There's geographical considerations, right? Like, where do you live, right? There's right. You don't choose to get sick, right? So, like, right. you're not... Although you choose the lifestyle that could make you get that's, sick oftentimes. Uh, sometimes, but... Sometimes, I mean, not all the time, right? My wife did not choose to get cancer. Exactly, right. right. So, it's like, you can't talk about it in these purely, like, market force terms because it obviously doesn't... It doesn't behave... Uh, in those like pure well, market terms, I started terms. talking about it. Might, it, might, it might behave in some market <laughs> terms, but not in right. those. Right. No, you can't. I mean, it is unknown circumstances that sure. occur. Um, right. Uh, and, and you brought up the agency piece. There are some circumstances I get in a car wreck and I'm unconscious and they need to treat me. Great. I don't have the agency to do it. We had the agency with Emily sure. to choose to go to the hospital or not. Right. Um, we didn't see ourselves as having the agency because she was sick. Right. We needed to treat her. We didn't want her to die. That's a pretty uh, brutal definition of agency. Right. Well, I mean, but if you <laughs> for really most people, it, you know what I'm saying. That that that's that's true, that's true. But I mean, agency is a completely separate <laughs> separate issue. But I, I get what you're saying. I think yeah. it's a really good definition for why um, single payer healthcare system works. So the the question for me then is, how do we make it work? Right. Of course. Yeah. So implementation. Okay. So first, there's there's two different questions there. It's how do we make it work in a vacuum? How do we make it work? Uh, in America, meaning politically, right? So how let's do, address the second one. How do we make it work politically in America? If so, you need to address it in a vacuum, that's totally fine too. Well, if you need to address it in a vacuum, um, 
you just you say, okay, what is insurance? Insurance is a risk pool. Mm-hmm. Uh, the broader the risk pool, the more dispersed risk is, the the healthier the insurance agency is. Okay, what's the broadest possible risk pool? The population of the United States. There. That's in the vacuum context of how right. you address healthcare. In the specific of American context, I think you have to start at what systems do we have in place that can be scaled up? Right. And we actually have three. We have Medicare, Medicaid. You consider those just the same thing if you want to. And yeah. then we have the VA, actually. Yeah, the VA is the single-payer right? system. So scale any of those up nationally, and you have single-payer. Right. How do you scale it up? Um, as far as how do you fund it or no, what? Yeah, well, I mean, ultimately, you're getting back to how do you fund it. But you've also got the scarcity issue. I don't want to get into the scarcity issue yet because it's a question of how many doctors we have. Well, so the issue of how you scale those up actually is ironic because everything tends to work better the more they scale up. In towns that have more than one hospital network... And cost is lower the more you scale up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the more competing hospital networks you have, like, they all have... They have different EMRs, right? Mm -hmm. In Seattle, we have, like... uh, What's an EMR? uh, Electronic medical record system, right? And so uh, one of the best things Obamacare did um, holistically for people was saying you had to have EMR, you had to have electronic medical records, and it was penalties if you didn't have it, and it had a, a, like a, mm-hmm. a lead in time for doctors to do it. Doctors hated it because they were really expensive. Um, they yeah, were you only, have to hire people to manage them. You have to hire people it's to ridiculous. manage them. Um, they were only really expensive because they were terrible systems that looked like they were designed by six-year-olds that right. had taken one semester in computer science. Um, had the government just made their own system, said this is the system, you gotta use it, it probably would have been a lot better. Yeah. Um, yeah, discontinuity between multiple different medical systems right. and so, for multiple different hospitals. So the more the more issue. you yeah. scale, the smoother all those things get. Uh, my wife, if you scale correct, if you scale correct, right? Yeah, my wife Janet uh, is a um, she works in the, the medical industry. She's a, a medical she's a research interviewer for Kaiser Permanente, which is one of the the biggest players as far as healthcare goes. They were in in the '90s and the kind of like managed care. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if you had to pick a good guy of the insurance companies, Kaiser would be the good guy. Right. Um, and something that she was telling me is that uh, simple things like having all of your prescriptions happen where you pick them all up at the same time once a month, which for the elderly is a huge deal mm-hmm. um, because of competing insurances, different insurances are covering certain things that almost never happens. Mm-hmm. And that one thing, if you can just get that thing to happen, uh, perfect uses for medicine goes through the roof. Because mm-hmm. no matter how good a medicine we have, if people don't use it as prescribed, it doesn't matter. Uh, average usage for medicine is 70% of perfect use, which is mm. incredibly low, right? And medicines are rated for their epi- efficacy, assuming like a 90% rate of perfect usage. Right. So all of those, which seem like kind of tangential side issues, are actually incredibly important for like the quality of care, not even the quantity of care, which right. is normally the argument for, for a single payer, but the quality of care for things like that, for, for streamlining the systems, which should happen when you scale. Now, I say should mm-hmm. because... I'm not an expert in like database management or assist, you know, that kind of thing. So I don't understand those things. Yeah. But if scaled correctly, those things should get better. And those things are inseparable from quality. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, so scale, at least the way I understand it, scale happens um, as you continue to Obviously, you scale up your business. If you've got a business, you scale up your business as um, you acquire more customers. Right. Because you acquire more customers, you get more revenue that you can reinvest and innovate the way that you manage things. Right. That's what my company, Amazon Web Services, is based on, um, is is the idea that you can uh, um, 
differentiate your resources or redifferentiate your resources so that you don't have to spend a bunch of time on managing IT. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can uh, use AWS's uh, infrastructure right. um, to, to do a bunch of stuff that you used to have to do, now you don't have to do. You can repurpose your time to focus on other things. Sure. So innovation is the driver for good scale. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's a, it's a two-part thing. Um, but I want to focus on, um, it's, it's innovation, um, but then it's also um, uh, how you can meet the demands that come in. Sure. Um, what level of supply do you have? And yeah. so it's, it's a matter of scarcity from my perspective. And you've got a couple of aspects of the scarcity in healthcare. You've got the uh, doctors. How many doctors are there? Um, you've got uh, the hospitals. How many hospitals are there? And um, how many specialists are at that hospital that can meet your specific need and everything like that? And I was reading yesterday that there are like a million doctors hmm. in the United States. There are 300 million people. Yeah. Um, so assuming they're taking out specialists, you're, you're going to have like a 350 to 400 to 1 ratio for doctors. Yeah. So that would be an incredibly great ratio, by the way. Most doctors see 2,000 patients a year, individual patients. Most family practice docs do. Right. Yeah. So yeah, if yeah, we yeah. were at 300, we would have like by an incredible margin, the, like the lowest doctor. Right. Ratio but you see the issue with... The, 2001 ratio like when we were at the hospital um i can only speak anecdotally on this but i think it applies to most hospital settings and we were at a good hospital the seattle cancer yeah. alliance with uw medicine which is a research hospital um uh yeah you've got a, a in any given evening uh the, there's one attending physician and you've got about 50 to 100 people in a wing but with that one attending physician focusing on it and then the nurse is focusing on the rest of it um it's a bad ratio when it comes to care um um, and it's worse at other hospitals. So the question is, how do you address the concern for care that each patient's going to have when they come in? And we had, uh, she had leukemia. Um, and I was wanting to talk to the physician every, every few hours because there were issues with fevers. There were issues with heart failure. There were issues with a bunch of different things. And they didn't have time for it. So um, how do you address the issue of limitations with the, uh, that the doctors have and, 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 and the, uh, the ability to actually have adequate care for people so first in a single-payer system specifically because the single-payer system um, has to assume at base that everyone should be able to to go and get free health yeah and then everyone will and then everyone will because yeah, yeah i mean kantian logic right it, it it needs to be able to be universally applied to be logically moral yeah so um it's universal the, 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 so. the answer is that you, <laughs> the answer is that you have to really understand the bottlenecks and the healthcare system and the cost drivers in the healthcare system. Right. And the bottlenecks and the cost drivers are hospitals. Yep. And not the doctors. No, they're not. Right. They're the hospitals. And we know and like because all insurance is predicated on this, is the reason that medical that checkups are free, that mm-hmm. they would be free even if it wasn't mandated by right. law, because it's more efficient to have um, annual regular checkups. It's more efficient to go to a primary care physician than it is to go to the hospital. We know that. And most I mean, I don't, I don't exactly know your childhood, but I grew up in a very poor county with, with a county hospital, and most of those beds were filled by people with that for getting diabetes treatment that mm-hmm. could have been done had they had insurance by a primary care doctor, but they didn't. And yeah, the only yeah, person yeah. that couldn't turn them away was hospital. What kind of doctor again? A primary care doctor. Primary care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A yeah. uh, GP, general practitioner, totally, primary care. Totally. It's all the same thing. Family yeah. doc. Yeah, preventative care. Right. Yeah. So the goal of any healthcare system should be to to triage, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Triage only works when everyone has access to to primary care. Right. Everyone does have access to emergency care, right? We ha- you can't turn someone away. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's just the least effective way to possibly do it. Right. The best way to do it is to have everyone access to primary care, which keeps those hospital beds free for people that actually need it. And mm-hmm. it's it's way more cost effective to do it. Right. So as far as like doctors not having enough time in the hospital for patients, it's like, well, yeah, because half of those patients shouldn't have been there. Right. They should like those those late stage cancers mm-hmm. that were catastrophic when they were caught. Those would have been preventable and treatable outpatient yeah. procedures. Had well, they, our had, cancer didn't have a stage. No, 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 yeah, no. Yeah, yours yeah. was. Your, but yours was. As far as the kind of cancer Emily got, that was... And we caught it by preventative care. You did. and But that kind, kind of, of cancer is incredibly rare. Like yeah, most yeah, kinds totally. of cancers are caught way before that. Breast cancer. And they're way more preventative. Prostate cancer, yeah. Um, most kinds of diabetes treatments, if diabetes is managed, never gets to... You can have a, a healthy, totally, active yeah. life. It never gets to a, a hospitalized standpoint. So to me, like the greatest benefit of a single-payer system would be that. That it would keep people out of the hospitals unless yeah. they need it. Yeah, and my friends in the UK, that's exactly how it works. They, yeah. they, they, they Skype chat with their doctors. They do, like, yeah, They yeah, have yeah, great yeah. relationships yeah. with their doctors. Technology, if anything, makes all this more easier. Like electronic medical records, um, like all these, like I said, all these systems that we have in place that we have multiple redundancies of because we have competing you know, factions for systems and insurances, if all of that is streamlined, all of that uh, right. gives doctors more time mm-hmm. for patient care, and it gets patients seeing their doctors more often, which keeps them out of the hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I also think that you should have, you know, multi-tiered. You should have um, urgent care centers mm-hmm. and things like that. And, it, and um, you know, like not every birth needs to be in a hospital. The, the, um, maternity wings where you're basically attended by like a midwife that has right. admitting privileges. Right. You know, that's cheaper, that's more efficient. So I think, you know, like a triaging approach. But all of that is still doable. It would be doable in... Um, a single parent system. I mean, there's there's instances of. Uh, I have to check. It's in this Tim, Tim Faust article. He talks about uh, like rural hospitals in Maryland, or, or like a county hospital system in Maryland mm-hmm. that was doing really, really poorly. And basically, the state said, "We're going to give you X amount of money. We don't care what you do with it, but right. you like have to do X and Y and Z as far as patient treatment." And the hospital came up with essentially for that county. A single payer model where they bolstered the uh, GPs, the family practice docs, and they built more uh, urgent care clinics. And mm-hmm. their their whole thing was like keeping people out of the hospital unless they really need to be there. Mm-hmm. And it they ended up actually having like surplus at the end. I mean, it's way more efficient system for them. Mm-hmm. So I, I I think talking about single payer just as like and single payer it's like as a vacuum. Anyone that is really invested in it, hopefully understands it more than that, that it's not just single payer, it's, it's rethinking the way we do right. medicine and, and, and thinking about the goal of medicine is a managed healthy life, Yeah. right? And which like you're, you could go your entire life with only interacting with your family. Right. So having access to preventative care limits the extent to which people are actually going to be going to these bottlenecks. The by, hospitals. An, by an enormous margin. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, sure. that's a wonderful point. And um, as far as... Sorry, no, you were going to say something. No, no, go ahead. Well, I, I know from reading the questions you sent me, you were going to ask about like just like the supply of physicians, and you kind of mentioned that already. The reason we don't have enough physicians, or we the reason we have as many as we have, is because that's controlled strictly by the American Medical Association. That's true. There's no market, yeah. there's no market uh, determining that, right? Yeah. The AMA says we will have this many residency spots, and then on match day, every single fourth-year medical student in the country gets an envelope saying where they're going to go match. Right. The reason we don't have more residency spots is because it's really expensive to have residents. And why is it expensive? Because hospitals lose all their money and patients don't need to be there. Yep. So it's a feedback loop. Yeah. All of these things actually make each other better in a single-payer system. That's, that's a 
Great point. The hospitals are the bottlenecks for both uh, patient care and the number of doctors and the number yeah, of doctors. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the AMA like the the argument that it's expensive for hospitals to have um, residents is a little bit of probably not a very honest argument because in fact, you know, like. Like I am a Marxist in a way, and so like uh, you know, the, the hospitals are are like robbing them of their labor. They have like a cap at eighty hours, you know, work week. So yeah. it's not like the hospitals are losing money on that deal, right? But they definitely say that they are, and that's the reason they can't have more. It's yeah. it's because it's because um, the AMA, as far as the amount of doctors they have, uh, functions as a cartel and controls it. So that's that's the answer to that. Cartel. It's an Fair artificially way. created problem. Yeah, it's not a real. It's not an innate problem. There are problem. many problems. Yeah, yeah, it's a problem of our own making and. Because it is of our own making, it's something mm-hmm. we can fix. Yeah, but let's let's get down more to the the philosophical aspects of scarcity. So I uh, uh, I told you that I was going to talk about Thomas Malthus, uh, the dismal. Yeah, I vaguely know about him. So you have to get yeah, so right um, uh, basically, and I'm going to simplify it like crazy. But the, what he's dealing with is a food shortage in England. Okay. Um, uh, there wasn't enough food uh, for the population um, at the time, and based on the rate that the population was growing. He looked forward and said, unless we increase the speed at which we grow food or develop food, people, um, if we can't control the supply and um, control the supply to the extent that we can meet the demand, Mm -hmm. i.e. the population, um, then the population is going to level out based on the supply. Um, So the supply is low, therefore the population is going to die out. Yeah. Not die out completely, but it's going to match the supply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They'll achieve an equilibrium. Yeah, right. Right. And, and, And so... The way I look at it still is you're going to have that equilibrium to some extent with healthcare because everyone needs coverage for when they're sick. They need health um, care. Yeah, they need to be looked after by a doctor in certain circumstances. Even if they have preventative care, they're going to get sick um, at some point in their life. And they're eventually going to die. They're going to have cancer. They're going to have whatever. You know, 30 people get cancer. Um, if you don't have the supply to meet the demand, the demand will meet the supply. How does single payer address that circumstance? And I know that you talked about preventative care. And you buy it. So by supply, you mean supply of doctors, supply, supply of, doctors. of well, supply um, of doctors. I you know I think what I just said. Get rid of the AMAs. Yeah, that's an artificial problem. That can be solved overnight. But medical schools have a one percent acceptance rate. Yeah, it's pretty low. But that being said, um, it does preserve the credibility or um, the credibility of the school. Not at that hospitals. rate it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Yeah. They're, they're not protecting their craft at that rate. Yeah, at that rate they're just preventing people from being doctors. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. so that can be tweaked. So then um, um, I guess we get down to motivation. So, you know, Adam Smith, father of capitalism is going to say um, money to an extent is what motivates those to pursue their crafts to an extent, right? Because they have, you know, altruistic motivations and stuff like that. So, if, if, because another thing that's going to have to happen is you, if you increase the supply, specifically you increase it universally, yeah. the supply of doctors, um, you, you continue to bring them in to be able to support the demand. You're going to have to lower the amount because it's taken care of by the government. You're not creating new money. Right. You're redistributing where the money's spent sure. and maybe taxing more. Sure. Um, so, um, what's going to happen to the doctor's pay? Is it going to go lower? It's probably going to go lower, yeah. Yeah. Um, do, what does that do when it comes to the motivation of people to actually become doctors? I don't think that's why people want to become doctors. And the motivation for high pay is because they're saddled with $200,000 in medical debt. Right. So what do we do with that? For well, college? Again, that's a yeah, that's an imagined problem. Right. Right? So, yeah, make if you're going to have a nationalized health system, I don't see any reason you wouldn't have 
at least medical school be free. Well, because you're allocating money and you're making sure that you ration money in the right area or put money in the right area. Yeah, that's so a, if, that, you, that's, if you spend a lot of money on college, then you have less money to spend on doctors. I mean, there aren't that many medical students and that many doctors compared to like the other costs of healthcare. Right, but if you got free college, free medical school. Well, yeah, I didn't say free college. I just said okay. free medical school. Sorry, that's totally Bernie different. says free college. He's, well, bad. he says free two-year college. But yeah, free two-year college. He okay. says free college, two-year college, because in his mind, I think he's right. Uh, so free medical school, not yeah. free college. Yeah, free medical school. Right. Which I love the idea. I just we, you see, or, we're getting at we're, we're redistributing money. Yeah, no, we're I redistributing that. money, but then we're getting um, that. Well, that comes down to another economic issue, not necessarily the scarcity issue. Well, I, I do think you're going to have to tax more, but I think that's yeah. more than offset by the premiums people pay. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's more than offset by what people pay in health insurance. Right. Like if tax was, if, if, if you let it to tax even half of what is paid yeah, in. Yeah, I pay to, 250 per month. If you give me a 250 per month tax, ideally that would yeah, create a ex- system where you've got enough. Sure. And then you would have, you would have the same healthcare minus all the headaches of insurance companies. Right. Win-win. Right. Um, but, but then who's allocating the money? To I mean, where, right? So the federal government. Well, let's go to the VA then. Yeah. Let's go to the VA then. Um, some VA hospitals, I think the Seattle VA hospital is amazing. Mm-hmm. That's what I've heard. I know a nurse that's there. She's yeah. awesome. Um, I grew up and my mom was working for the Little Rock VA hospital. Yeah. It was horrible. Yeah. And I, I, I've, I've heard the same thing about, cause I, I, you know, I've advocated, most people think that, that universal healthcare should be achieved by an expansion of Medicare. And I've always said, what about the VA? And what I've always heard is like, oh, the VA is terrible. Like most of the time. Well, I'm not saying it's and, and, and I, I don't actually know that. I have no experience with yeah. the VA. I just, to me, it seems like, well, they already had a hospital, so that would make no sense. But, um, yeah, I I understand that, like, there are some bad VA hospitals. Yeah, well, I'm not saying it's terrible. I'm saying there's some bad, some good, but yeah. it's a matter of where the money is bureaucratically pushed. And so what's happening, and, yeah. and, and, and we keep going to different areas, and you've got wonderful arguments on most counts, um, but... Um, it's still always an economic issue because you've got the free hand of the market that allocates resources to where they need to so that supply can meet demand and um, the prices are, are, are right. in accordance with what demand will pay based on um, what the needs of uh, the, the population is um, or what the needs are. So um, in the VA, um, it's a matter of pork barrel spending in, in, of sorts, right? right. Where... Where, where does the money go? Which hospital gets more money or, you know, stuff like well, that? How I mean, is that allocated? I mean, I think a lot it's bureaucratically of, allocated, right? It would have to be bureaucratically allocated. But and would I, a single-payer system require a bureaucratic allocation? Uh, it would, but I think you don't understand how much of it is already bureaucratically allocated. So, I mean, like, for instance, well, but, but, I, I was talking about, yeah. like, um, sort of like the joke of about communism is that it's like a bunch of old fat guys sitting in a room deciding how much potatoes should cost right but that yeah. is exactly what the ama does for for all procedures every single procedure anyone does is is a a, a factor of medicare cost it's mm. medicare cost times 1.2 for a new knee at mm. this hospital it's medicare cost times 3.1 for a new knee at this hospital right. so that already happens mm-hmm. you already have an enormous amount of like bureaucratic control over the entire of the medical system so mm-hmm. it wouldn't actually be that different. It might mm-hmm. be a little more holistic, but right. um, there's a ton of that going on already. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be that different. And I, you know, it's like, hard to measure though because the AMA apparently, at least in your summation, is is controlling a lot of it and restricting or is acting as a well. So to all so of the, the AMA doesn't set prices. Medicare sets prices, and then the AMA negotiates with them 
for their salaries and for how much they can charge for procedures. But right? just specifically for Medicaid, so what happens with the rest of the insurance companies? They bill as a function of Medicare. That's their baseline billing Right. Form. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the average patient has no idea what those numbers actually are. Right. Because so it's all the, made up numbers. Then what's the issue? Medicaid or the AMA? Yeah. Uh, it, well, we think which, which is like the bad actor. Well, I'm not yeah. saying there's a bad what's actor. causing I, the issue? I, I'm, well, I'm not saying there's a bad actor here. I'm just saying that that idea of like bureaucratic all- allocation already happens right. for like price setting for procedures. Right. It would, still, it, it would have to keep happening. It wouldn't be like we went from like yeah. a perfect free market system with no bureaucratic allocation with it in every facet. I'm saying it's already but, there in most facets. But you anyways. see the issue then. The price setting is the issue. Well, yeah, you have to have price setting. You should have price setting. Well, but do you have to have price setting in a, a, a pure, uh, a, a purely uh, freehand economic system? You can't because because people aren't deciding to get these surgeries based on freehand market principles. They don't have choices have in to, this matter. And so they have to pay whatever amount. Yeah, it is, right? so you have to set prices because they're not commodities. Mm-hmm. Right? right. I mean, that's a well. I mean, well, I mean, there are a lot of things that aren't commodities that people pay for, um, and it, it drops because the demand isn't. Um, uh, the price drops because the demand uh, is uh, higher than supply. Um, anyway, uh, side note. Um, but you see the issue, right? That the bureaucratic control, even if it's already there, um, is arbitrary. It's 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 price setting that doesn't necessarily um, match what the supply is. Um, and therefore, you create a, a sort of scarcity. You following? Yeah, I follow what you're saying, but I just don't. I don't think that's how the decisions are made on the ground. Like right. no one, like you don't get a menu when you walk into a hospital. Of like, oh, I'll take one knee replacement and I'll take one dialysis treatment, and oh, you guys have a good deal going. That's not how things work. <laughs> yeah. Right. So just like price, you don't have an option to say. You no. don't have an option. Yeah. So pricing, and especially models, because you're restricted to where a hospital, the, your closest hospital, and yeah. And so like I, yeah. I think like you're you're so far removed from any real like voting with your dollar like market forces in healthcare that I my my view is to say, you know what, just freaking nationalize it all. And like would there be bureaucratic uh inefficiencies in allocation of resources? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um if I can make another kind of Marxist jab, I mean, you know, look at the juicero and tell me that's a good allocation of resources. Look at the what? The juicero, the thing that juices juice and it's like seven hundred dollars. But you can actually just juice it with your hands. So you don't need it. Like, tell me that's a good allocation of capitalist resources. Yeah. You know, tell me that. Um, I don't know. Like, pick your dumb thing from Silicon Valley and tell me that's like like a Wi-Fi, <laughs> like a Wi-Fi enabled salt, salt and pepper shaker. Snapchat. Tell me that's a good allocation. That's what the market wants. Yeah, it's sad, and, and I get that. I get that. So, so Mar- I mean, in capitalism at base, can oftentimes uh, induce materialism. Right. So, so are there trade-offs? Yeah. yeah. Is the big trade-off that we could have bureaucratic? inefficiencies yeah but we already have so many insane inefficiencies mostly caused by redundancies Mm -hmm. because of competing um people trying to get their share you know their market share so like i guess at the end of the day do i see that as a trade-off i'm more than willing to make yeah and do the numbers pretty much back up what i'm saying yeah most people say they do yeah um i think it comes down to the arguments against single payers seem to have to be framed in like what you're doing, like the more abstract, the yeah. more like ideological, because I think the num, like I really do think the numbers are on my side. Yeah, I don't, I don't have the numbers in my head, but no, no I mean I, the AMA is even like starting to pivot towards it. Yeah, and they're like one of the most conservative. Yeah, they're definitely not against in the, the current age. Yeah, um, that makes sense.
so that's scarcity. Um, I, I mean, so I think we've, what we've come down to is um, there's still going to be a bureaucratic issue. There has to be, yeah. Um, supply is never going to adequately meet the demand. Yeah. Um, and so it's not optimal. Um, there's another piece um, that capitalism tends to allocate for. I go back to Joseph Schumpeter, who talks about the pie. And if you redistribute the pie, um, and this goes with you know socialism at broad, right? Yeah. But, if you redistribute the pie, you're just redistributing the pie. You're not growing the pie. But sure. what grows the pie? Innovation grows the pie. Yeah. Um, and so when it comes to coming for cures for cancer, if when it comes to coming up for cures for Alzheimer's or whatever ailment you're talking about, how does single-payer system facilitate that? Versus capitalism, which um, facilitates that because you basically um, – there, there's a profit that comes from um, – selling services or goods or whatever it is that you can then reinvest into um, the, the, the metaphorical pie, right. so to speak, that then can grow um, and, and with the right idea, with the right innovative idea mixed with the investment, you can actually build out something that grows the pie. Right. So I yeah. mean, single payer doesn't preclude a pharmaceutical industry. For right. Um, and pharmaceutical industry in America spends at least half of their money on advertising. So, mm -hmm. like, let's not pretend that they don't have money to do oh, research. Oh, totally, 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 um, totally. And also, the majority... Of course, they have to sell, because a pharmaceutical industry is different than the hospital industry, right? Right, but so hospital, sell, hospitals yeah. don't, don't, don't produce research anyways. Universities produce research. Yeah. And those universities are state-funded. Well, but, but or hospitals they have don't produce researchers, uh, or research hospitals produce research, but... Right, um, and research sorry. hospitals are usually linked up with universities... Which have endowments or are state funded, but, but there are so that's plenty of private institutions. I've got even two friends flat out who are working for private institutions who are doing. Um, one of them is doing polymer research into cancer. Uh, um, uh, I don't know DNA sequencing to be be able to figure out how what antigens are on cancer cells to be able to attack those with specific manufactured polymers. Right? Sure. Um, and then another one's doing something else. I forget what it is. So, but, but even so, like ninety percent of that research is done at the university level. Ninety percent. A huge amount of research is done at the university level, and then the last push is done by pharmaceuticals. That's at least a general well, way. And pharmaceuticals, but I'm talking about like polymer science, which is a completely separate science. Okay, sure. So, does the fact that the Department of Justice buy uh, like they have a bidding process for who gets to make their plane, and that doesn't that doesn't dissuade Lockheed Martin from trying to be the most innovative, and also Boeing, and also Northrop Grumman, right? Even though one of them is going to get the bid, that's exactly what would happen for pharmaceuticals under like a price setting way in the national. If we had a nationalized system, mm -hmm. right? right? Like how would they? You know what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. you would just get like a, a sort of the way that the military bids for new planes, you would have bidding prices for new drugs. I don't see how that would kill innovation at all. But my point, I think, still stands that the vast majority of research is done by universities. Okay. Like, the vast majority. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to say about that. Okay. I don't think it would make much of a dent at all. Yeah, I... Uh... Or, the kind of stuff you're talking about, that's cross-training. I mean, those mm -hmm. are, like, things that, you know, material science is, a, is broad research that has medical applications, that has... You know, applications in, in making stronger, stiffer cars. It has applications in making, I don't know, the newest fidget spinner that goes like the longest. You know what I'm saying? So, like, mm -hmm. you know, material science, to say that like that would dry up underneath uh, like a nationalized system, I, I think is, is well, wrong too. But the, the, the thing about it is, though, that the people that buy the drugs or the people that buy the services or the treatments, whatever it is, subsidize the industries that, that, um, um, kind of push out that those new ideas, those sure. innovative things. Yeah. Um, when the government's paying for it, 
um, what you have is a non uh, a government controlled um, subsidy for the healthcare system that doesn't necessarily go it doesn't always go back or it doesn't go back in full sum yeah. um, to these industries um, that are pushing these drugs to the hospitals or whatever it may yeah. be. Yeah. Now, w- w- would there be a lessening? Yeah, perhaps. But again, that's, will, that's one, that's a trade-off I'm willing to make. Uh, two, as far as like general effectiveness of care in like the broadest 360 million people in the country since, like I said, um, it doesn't matter how good your drugs are if people don't use them. Right. It doesn't matter how good your drugs are if people don't use them in the correct way. Mm-hmm. All of which are things that all of those percentages are things that improve under a nationalized healthcare system. So, like a ton of research is done on efficacy of already manufactured drugs, mm-hmm. right? And all of that research points to that if they were more accessible and you didn't have as many like insurance loopholes to jump through, people would use them more correctly, mm-hmm. right? So, like all of, so like there's research in I don't know like I, I'm in university right now like I'm sort of an academic and I'm around PhDs all the time like yeah, I don't yeah. think they have this you know like monetary sort of concern for what they do as much that being said I, I, I really have no experience in like the corporate world at all so I don't right. understand that either yeah no, that makes sense I, I it's a good argument I, I, I don't I'm not saying there's not a trade-off right I think yeah. I think I think that your arguments are for what would be like the counterbalance to what I'm arguing for? Sure. I just think that they're worth it. Yeah. And I think they're worth it by a fairly significant margin. Yeah, because you're saving people. Yeah. I mean, I think there's also like a strong moral argument for it too. Yeah. Well, and you've also got more test cases to do the research that actually bolsters um, the um, kind of yeah. understanding of how things specifically I mean, work. I mean, at, like not to be like too extreme about it, but at the end of the day, like we could stop doing medical research tomorrow and for 99% of people that would like, as long as they had, ac- if they could actually access the drugs that are currently available and the mm-hmm. treatments that are currently available and they could actually get them, not, I don't mean access in the sense of like be in the hospital where they're performed, but like have those treatments done to them. Right. Their lives would be drastically improved. Right. So we need to find innovation that actually bolsters this idea that we need to get ahead of things as opposed to just get behind things. Sure. Yeah. yeah that's a good way to put it. Yeah. That actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, a lot of sense. Of course, when you have a single barrier system, then you still have that um, that issue of government-controlled subsidies that don't necessarily track back to all of the different private industry. That and, and that's fair. But if you look at the NHS, they have kind of a dual system, right? Like a parallel system. Like there are still private hospitals. And we have that... We have sort of that now. We have and Thailand has it too. Probably. We have we have doctors uh, who are like bespoke or um, uh, shoot, what's bespoke? What do you mean by bespoke? Uh, bespoke is a fancy word for like handmade or like custom. Right. Uh, but that's not the word. It's really, uh, boutique. Mean, like, they, they call themselves boutique, boutique doctors. You pay yeah, cash yeah. for them. You pay cash, and yeah. they're your. And so you know you pay like a, you pay like a retainer fee. Yeah. And to be one of this doctors, like only fifty patients. We already have a parallel system like that. Yeah. And. Most people don't have access to these doctors, even if they wanted to, because it's a mm-hmm. word of mouth. Sort but would of thing. these doctors be able to do it if there was a single payer system? Yeah, yeah. Single payer, like I said, doesn't preclude that happening. Right, but why would the bulk of a population, or even a quarter of the population, choose something they would have to pay for over something they don't have to pay for? Well, those people are choosing something they have to pay way more for than something that they could get, you know, through like the normally available means already. So, like, right. I mean, you're asking like. Why do people buy yachts when they? Well, yeah, buy but they're losing an income because of the increased cost uh, tax revenue from it. 
Yeah, I suppose, but I'm saying you're still gonna have boutique docs. It's not gonna go away. Right. You're still gonna have you're still gonna have elective surgeries that aren't covered. Right. Right. To me, that's one of the, actually the most daunting questions. Like, how do you decide that? What's elective and what's not? I think that's actually a very interesting question to talk about. Like, yeah. Like, what's should covered? should breast augmentation? Yeah, uh, we haven't get, be gotten covered? into this idea of rationing. Right. Yeah, we right. haven't even gotten there because like there is gonna have to be some rationing. But again, yeah, we haven't gotten to what like what is what would a single payer system do to our economy? Uh, well, I because mean, it's like one sixth of it. Yeah, but I would say it shouldn't be one sixth. Yeah, that's valid. Way too much. I mean, I, I think as far as rationing, you know, those are all decisions that are going to have to be made. But I still think they're all worth it. Yeah. Um, other countries have found a way to do it. Yeah. And it works for them. And, and so, like, you're going to have that parallel system. You're still going to have yeah. elective care. Yeah. That's not going to go away. Do you hear about that baby in the UK that um, has to? They're, they're going to take off his life support and they won't let him let, let the parents go to the United States to treat him. Hmm. Yeah, anyway, uh, I bring that up uh, just because it, a single-payer system where the um, the doctors basically have jurisdiction to be able to say what's um, what should be um, taken care of and what shouldn't, um, which is then morphed into, at least with the NHS, and then the EU actually backed it too, is morphed into um, a preventing of autonomy for the parents to be able to kind of um, make decisions for what this kid yeah. can and can't do based on what is humane. Um, the kid's going to die anyway. And you're going to prolong suffering kind of thing. Well, um, I mean, to me, like... And we I, can't get into it right now. Well, right? I, think that's, yeah. I think that's a broader problem of yeah. a general, like, undercutting of, people, of expertise sure. and, and, like, armchair experts in yeah. general in society. I mean, I'm, you know, I teach a university class and I get, like chippy students all the time like undercutting my expertise I'm like man this is it's like such a yeah. profound problem that I think extends beyond that but like it's also a massive cost saving right mm-hmm. we, we, I mean we joke about like Obama's death panels or whatever but like uh, palliative care is incredibly expensive it's one of the most expensive things you can do in healthcare is like extending someone's life yeah and again it's just like saying what's elective and what's not those are hard decisions to right, make right but if it's private you can continue to pay for it well, and like I said, we'll probably still have a parallel system, but... Um, right, but with the single-payer system, you've got a monopoly that, by necessity, um, takes away from the success of these private systems. Yeah, and again, that I, I mean, I think... I think it's I a think trade-off that you think is worth it's it. It's a trade-off right? I think it's worth it, and I think that, that like you should trust your doctor to make individualized decisions for you. Like, I, I think that. Well, it was their doctor's... But you, I mean, it's a second opinion yeah. ideal, right? Right. Um, you should get a second opinion because doctors don't know everything. Yeah. But of course, I, I you know, there. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure that idea of second opinion was invented in America. It had to have been. There's no way any other country came up with that. Yeah. It's like undercutting an expert to that to that point, but. Yeah, and it's a weird story, and I'm sure there's stuff not being said. I, think I mean, I'm, I'm not say. saying you're wrong. It's just like those are. You know, like what? What do they say that like an anecdote is like the enemy of, of like reason? Like those, those are. I mean, those are like <laughs> yeah, anecdotes, no, totally. and those are like percentage of percentage of percentages. Yeah, but and, and but like with, anecdotes are enemies to reason only in so much as it prevents those who are wanting to apply a certain rule uh, to something that can't be universally applied. Yeah, well, things don't have to be universally applied. They just have to be applied. You know, ninety nine point nine nine percent, and that's good enough for me. 
I get that, but but at the same time, when you're looking at something, is is it moral or is it not moral? At least with Kantian logic, anything that can't be universally applied is moral because it goes against the law of non-contradiction. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, plenty of people will prove Kant wrong. So um, <laughs> that's valid. The uh... I'm, look, I'm not a huge Kant fan. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, he's a big, big contributor. But anyway, yeah. Um, no, this has been a great conversation. It yeah, it sounds has. like I, I think the bigger conversation now is, is a couple of things. Uh, one, what does it do to our economy? Um, which um, I think we would have disagreements there too because um, socialism is not capitalism. And so uh, econo- an economy basis would have to be based on a different economic model. Um, and sure. I think that's a great conversation. Or at least have. a portion of it would have to a be. A portion yeah. of it, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think the second and I think the bigger piece is um, individual autonomy. Sure. Um, I, I specifically didn't want to get into that tonight. I think that's um, the best argument I have on it is the idea of... Um, at least in the American ethos, uh, or the United States-based ethos, um, the idea of freedom uh, as uh, preeminent um, to a, a lot of other ideals, or as, as the foundation for our ideals as a nation. Yeah. So when it comes to single-payer system, is it antithetical to the idea um, that that the individual is free? Yeah. Um, big conversation. But dude, this is an awesome conversation. And it was. You, you've brought me... A little bit further left on the, <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> on the, um, on the, on the, the healthcare spectrum. Obviously, I ha- I still have my qualms with it. But. That's okay. If you, if, if, as far as I'm concerned, like healthcare is the the hill that I will die on for the left. And a lot of other <laughs> stuff, like I'm, I'm pretty chill about. But this is like, this is my thing. And, yeah. And I, I think, I think if well, people, I need to research more on. I think if, if people could could compartmentalize perhaps a little more with like their, like I feel very strong about healthcare. You know, I don't really know what I think about identity politics. Yeah. And maybe we can have some better conversations about it. Yeah, so. yeah. Like, don't get wrapped up in partisan identity. That mm-hmm. was actually my first podcast. Yeah, was about yeah, yeah. partisan identity and how we get wrapped up into these culturally normative things based on our social existence. I think that's good. Um, don't get wrapped up in that. Um, but then, of course, not getting wrapped up in that inextric- is inextricably tied to individual autonomy. Which we'll get into <laughs> we'll next, get time next time when we talk about healthcare. For so, sure, dude. This is awesome. Thanks a lot, man. Thank, thank um, you. Thanks for coming, and uh, I think we'll need to have a part two. That sounds good. Awesome, man. Well, we're going to wrap up now. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening. I I know it was a bit longer, actually almost twice as long as our normal uh, podcasts are, but uh, I think it was a very substantive conversation, uh, and I hope you all enjoyed listening. Thanks.